Hi, I'm John Rogers. I created the show Leverage and Rogue Transformers, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment over here on SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks. And Julie. And Genretainment is where we talk about what's happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. And for today's episode, we're chatting with the director, John Badham. He's worked on over 30 films and 45 TV episodes. He's probably best known for directing classic films like War Games, Short Circuit, and Saturday Night Fever. But he's also the author of two books, John Badham on directing and I'll Be In My Trailer, The Creative Wars Between Directors and Actors. Now we talk in the interview about all those projects and more, plus we work in a number of Excellent question submitted by you, our listeners. Before we get started with our interview, we do want to point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand. It's a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy, and you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. And a warning before we get started, I had a really bad code during this interview. <laughs> I have a little bit of one right now, but it's, it's mostly gone. That's why he sounded like he was holding his nose <clears throat> during the interview. Yes. That's why I have that starting now. I know. It's, it's going around, people. Be Thank careful. Thank you for sharing. Be careful out there. I told you, you didn't have to share. <laughs> well, now let's get started with our interview with director John Bedham. David Lightman was a master at computer games. A fast thinker. Oh, David! Maybe you could tell us who first suggested the idea of reproduction without sex. Your wife? <laughs> Get out, baby. And a promising student Hi. at an old game. Hi. With an electronic twist. Are those your grades? Yeah. I don't think that I deserved it, F. Do you? You can go to jail for that. Only if you're over 18. This computer company is coming out with these amazing new games in a couple of months. And I want to play those games. Wow. What? We got something. He found the right code word to play the game. We're in. But it was the wrong computer. Shall we play a game? How can I ask you that? How about global thermonuclear war? Fine. All right. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you for asking me to come with you and talk to you. <laughs> well, thank you. Our audience was very excited when they heard you were going to be on the show. Mm -hmm. And we have lots of fans of War Games, Saturday Night Fever, and Short Circuit. I love that one, especially. <laughs> and uh, fans of your directing on TV, too. And you've worked on over 30 films and 45 TV episodes, I believe. Uh, but I'm uh, surprised that not a lot have heard about your books just yet. So we're yeah. going to talk about that. You have a new book, John Badham, on directing or I'll Be In My Trailer, The Creative Force Between Directors yeah, and Actors. A, yeah, that was your first book. I like you... that title. <laughs> it is a fun title. Yeah. And... I have the Bee Gees song in my head as I'm doing this. Okay. I am. Um, because, because not only is it a good song, that's the song I don't know if uh, you're in a bit of other pop culture uh that song, Stayin' Alive, is the uh, song you're supposed to have when you do CPR so that you can keep the chest compressions at the right tempo. Isn't that amazing? Yes. <laughs> that. That's right. I said that's the guy that directed the CPR song. <laughs> Your movie saved lives. Yes. yes so. Oh, my God. Yes. 
So we do want to talk about your new book, but first we want to get a little bit into your background for those who might not know your career. Well, they know your stuff. They just may not know it's you. So, uh, Which leads us to our first audience question. Uh, this comes from Joseph Barniak, who <laughs> wants to know how you broke into the industry. Okay. Well, I have probably the world's worst, worst path into the, into the industry because I, I did go to the Yale Drama School and was an undergraduate at Yale, but I took no film courses and there, because there were none. There were none to take. And I showed up in Hollywood thinking that with my two degrees from Yale, it would be just great fun to get working in the movies. So after many months of looking, I finally, finally got a job delivering mail at Universal Studios. <laughs> and and that was so successful that I actually then took tours at Universal Studios and spent uh, a long time doing that before I got to be a casting director. So, I mean, I really inched my way up the uh, the, the very steep cliff of, of <laughs> directing, even though I that's what I sort of studied in school. And, and it really wasn't until I came to California that I really started learning about how movies are shot and television shows are shot and how I could uh, best work in that. So a lot of my casting director experience was great because I got to follow directors and producers around and ask them all the stupid questions that I should already know the answers to. And, <laughs> um, and eventually one of them let me start directing little things for them, you know, literally inserts, you know, give me a shot of this ashtray of the cigar burning in the ashtray those kind of things, and, and then eventually whole shows. Uh, my first was a television show with Hal Holbrook called The Senator, and I did a lot of television and started working my way up through Movies of the Week over five or six years until I did my first movie, which was called The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars with Billy D. Williams and James Earl Jones and Richard Pryor. <laughs> oh, wow, what a cast. And it uh, was a, a great story about uh, what happened in in baseball, where you, everything used to be segregated in the what were then called the Negro Leagues, uh, where the black players were totally segregated from the white players. And uh, the Negro Leagues had their own teams and their own great players who actually were way better than the white players. And that wasn't known till 1947 when Jackie Robinson came in as part of the Brooklyn Dodgers that people started to go, oh, my God, where all these people been all this time? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's really cool because it's truly like you really worked your way up. I know. And, ladder. you know, that ended up being the best education I'm sure that you could have gotten was literally starting at the bottom. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I have such appreciation and respect for everybody's job on a movie set right down to, you know, the freshest PA or the guy who makes the coffee. And, mm -hmm. and I know what, how, you know, miserable it can be and how hard it is. And yet, you know, how excited people are to be, you know, part of uh, a, a business where you're making something new every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, while we're talking about your movies, let's talk a little more about your movies. Like, let's start with, mm, there's so many good ones. Let's... War Games? Let's start with War Games. Let's start yeah. with War Games. That's a good one. <laughs> I got an idea. Let's, let's start with War Games. <laughs> there we go. 
That's our first move. You see, there you go. Uh, we'll do it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I really, I always really liked that one. That was one of my favorites. Which actually, it was. Uh, I was reading about it the other day, and there was an interesting story that I read about. Yeah. I read that you came on as a director uh, a little bit late into it, like after a few days of filming, and the tone of the movie was going to be a lot darker originally, and you needed to kind of lighten it up. And a, and a little bit of a funny story how you did that. Do, do you know what I'm referring to? Do you remember the the Let's story? <laughs> Could uh, you tell it? I, I I had to reshoot a scene that had already been shot. It was a scene where Matthew Broderick's character brings his then brand new girlfriend up into his own bedroom where he shows her how he can, on his computer, hack into the school's computer and change her biology grade from an F to an A. And, uh, and when I saw the original version of this, I, I realized that these kids were acting like terrorists, <laughs> you know, plotting to, to, to blow up a city or uh, you know, shoot down a crowd of people. They were so dark and they were so kind of scurrilous. And, and I thought to myself, you know, if I could change a girl's grade on the computer, I would be so excited. I would be peeing in my pants. <laughs> and that's what this scene needs. It needs this excitement about, look what I can do. And, oh, my God, you can do that. Don't. You're going to get us in trouble. And, and it needed that playfulness. Well, that was nice to have that idea. But I had two actors then, two young actors, Ali Sheedy and Matthew Broderick, who were so scared that they were the next people to be fired. Mm -hmm. And, and they were terrified that I really would have been better off working with two stone statues. <laughs> they were so stiff and so nervous and frightened by me that we kept going take after take as I'm trying to loosen them up and tell them jokes and uh, run up and tickle them and, you know, do funny things during the take. And it took a long time till maybe 10, 12 takes in that it started to get good. And, and I said, okay, we're having a contest now. All right. We're going to run around the block just to get some energy back up because we've done all these takes. So let's all run around the block. And the last person to get back on the stage has to sing a song for the crew. And <laughs> so we ran around the block and guess, guess who lost? <laughs> guessing it was you. The old guy who's the director. <laughs> the teenagers no. ran circles really quick. I mean, I was so old, I was like 40. Oh my God. <laughs> and of course, that was part of the plan. And I sang the stupidest song I could think of, which was called The Happy Wanderer. I love it, that song. <laughs> it got everybody laughing, laughing so hard that, uh, you know, things loosened up tremendously that day and and it, it set a good tone for the for the rest of the picture <laughs> <laughs> i love that okay so i i love the song but i've only this last year learned that it's actually in english i always knew it in german did you sing it in english or german i only know it in english oh okay <laughs> i've recently learned the yodeling first verse part, in english yodeling part i don't know if that's english or german it's but, the same fallery uh, fallera <laughs> that's right that's all i know <laughs> That's so cool. I want the youth to go along with it and feel really stupid doing it. <laughs> I love it. 
So let's talk a little bit about Short Circuit. That's a little unusual because you had a direct, not just live actor, but you had to direct a robot of sorts. <laughs> what was that like doing that? Have you done anything before that point with, I guess it was puppeteering type work? No, uh, I, I hadn't. And what I, what I knew in reading the script was that our star of the movie was a robot. And it was not going to be Ali Sheedy, and it was not going to be Steve Gutenberg, who we were glad to have. But the the character that that jumps off the page at you is the robot. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to keep convincing people that this is the star of our movie. This is not just some elaborate movie prop here. Yeah. And we had to treat him just like we would treat a person. And in fact the mechanics of him were so elaborate that we had an 18 wheeler trailer that was just filled with number five. Oh my uh, gosh. <laughs> because he had so many versions of himself and I don't know any movie stars that go around with 18 wheel trailers. <laughs> uh, I would come on the set in the morning and the puppeteers would have him set up and I'd go over and say hello to him and talk to him about the scenes that day. And, uh, you know, have fun with him, treat him like, you know, our star, uh, <laughs> you know, to get everybody, everybody in the mood uh, with that, uh, because it was hard for my producers or for the studio to understand that matter, that that this you had to think of him that way and treat him that way, because that's the way people were going to see him in the movie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, that was fairly new, really. I mean, because, you know, we grew up with, you know, Short Circuit and and the androids from Star Wars. And, and now there's so much, you know, special effects and, you know, characters that don't even really exist until the special effects get on that, you know, we're used to that. But that had to have been a, a completely new way of thinking for those who, those of you who are actually making kind of this first wave of non-human stars. Yeah. Oh. Very. The, the, a lot of the challenge was that we just did not have the technology to do what you could do now with, uh, you know, with the computer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, up to that point, the most elaborate things were R2-D2 and C-3PO. Mm -hmm. And, you know, very simple humanoid type of type of robots from lost in space that you might remember. Um, yeah. And one producer who who made a film with 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 two robots and um, oh, gosh, I, I'm, I'm going to blank on their name. But I think Andy Kaufman played the voice of one robot. And um, oh, oh, gosh, I can't think of the woman's name anyway. It's a love story between two robots. And the producer told me afterwards, he said, I never reckoned with how hard it was to make something that's inanimate look alive and, and have energy to it. Yeah. The big fault of our movie was everything was just so ponderously slow as these robots moved from place to place. And there was no speed, no energy. And the film, the film was called Heart Beeps. Oh. I'm I'm just r reminded. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so and 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 you know th that was a good thing to be told because the uh, it, it focused us on you know how can we uh, you know get energy and life and vitality out of this guy? We've got it on the page and in the dialogue is very funny, mm -hmm. but uh, you know physically how are we going to do this? And 
thank God we had great special effects guys who could create a robot and, and the puppeteers were the unsung heroes there mm -hmm. because they, they just bring characters to life. I mean, <laughs> these guys, if they had a day off, they were off doing a McDonald's commercial playing chicken fingers. Animate <laughs> <laughs> chicken fingers for guys sakes. Oh, wow. Well, it worked because, I mean, really, Johnny Five, everybody fell in love with him. I mean, he was, you know, he just he was, he was captured alive. your heart. Yeah, Johnny Five alive. Yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, the voice of the of the robot, uh, everybody was thinking, well, we should get Robin Williams to do it or we should, you know, all the, the usual suspects. And I wanted a voice on the set that people could act with. And one of our puppeteers was just had a, a fabulous sense of humor and a funny voice. And uh, I got him to doing it and and he became the voice because he was just so good. And, and that way the actors could all act with him and not not with just me reading the lines off stage, yeah. which is not a good way to be doing comedy. No, because you don't have that energy of someone That's who's right. not able to concentrate. You know, if you're trying to direct and read line, I mean, you're just not going to have the energy yeah, that they no need chemistry. to play off of. Yeah. 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 See, that's really, it's a great, well, the nice thing versus CGI is that at least there's something physical there. Right. And then by you having the, the voice actor be there too, and by treating it, treating it as a actor, you know, that I think a fellow actor that helps. Yeah. I would imagine it helped the actors grow a connection to the characters. So. Oh, absolutely. I mean, they, they were all in love with each other after a few days and they stopped worrying about being upstaged by what had now become, you know, their, their good buddy. <laughs> well, I love that, that your approach seems to be, um, as a director, you seem to, understand the actors their roles and and how they're feeling a lot better than i think a lot of other people who direct do um there there are there is sort of a tendency to see actors as just sort of movable props <laughs> yes abs absolutely and and it's it's such a sad mistake to make mm -hmm. um it's done all the time but instead of treating actors as your creative partners you treat them as, you know, robots, props to be moved about mm -hmm. at, your, at your will. And if you will engage them as creative partners, you'll find they have a lot to contribute that makes the scene even better than, than you had in your mind. And that's no matter how clever you are as a director, you can always profit from listening to other people's ideas and incorporating the good ideas, not the bad ones, into into what you're doing just by opening your mind up a little bit. And and then you have not only a better scene, you've got a happier set, uh and and people that enjoy enjoy being there and, and enjoy contributing to your movie. Mm-hmm. That's great, yeah, because, I mean, you have to be as a director on top of everything that's going on and what everybody needs to be doing, but people who specialize in acting or people who specialize in special effects, it you know, if you can put your ego aside and realize, well, if they specialize in that, they might have, know a little bit more than me and have a good contribution <laughs> and a different perspective, you know? Absolutely, and, and, uh, and, and in a good trusting environment, people are happy to throw out ideas and if I if I treat them with respect and not roll my eyes or 
you know, make silly comments, they're happy to give me more ideas. And some work and some don't, and that's okay. You just you say, well, they're ideas. It's all right. Uh, if this one doesn't work, we'll find another one that does work. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's talk about one of the other m- big movies that you're well-known for, Saturday Night Fever. So, and I'm, I'm doing the dance right now. Yeah, she's doing a dance right now. <laughs> <laughs> good well, thing there's no camera. <laughs> good thing you can't see this. Uh. <laughs> you're very good. No, I like the rhythm there. That's... <laughs> He's a good director. He is a good director. I'm trying to like do the dance in an office chair that squeaks without squeaking it. So. Yeah, no, there's that thing you're doing with your hips. It's really cool. <laughs> I like him. <laughs> okay, so. So Saturday Night Fever. How, right, right. How did you get involved in that? Uh, I actually had been talking to uh, the producers, Robert Stigwood, about another film that he later made which was called Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Woo-hoo. And and he got into a big disagreement with his uh, his original director and turned around and just said, "Here, John, you're doing this." And I go, "What? What? What? I <laughs> I, I haven't I've never been in a disco." Uh, <laughs> my mother sent me to dancing class when I was 11. Uh, maybe that will help. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the truth was that I had actually been working on preparation of the movie for The Wiz. Um, oh, yeah. And and I had had difficulty with the producers on that one and actually quit the film over some casting issues. And, and so I had been looking at every movie musical ever made and thinking about every movie musical and so it just all segued into this, uh, the, the thinking I'd been doing and then the knowledge I was gaining from staging musical numbers and saying, okay, now we're going to make this little documentary musical, a documentary oh. style musical and where nobody's singing, but the music is part of, you know, what's in their souls and, and is a, a revealing character to us by what is telling us about what they're thinking and going through. So it was a very exciting time to, to be doing that film. Great. Well, one audience question before I forget what we're talking about, Saturday Night Fever, and I don't know if you'll know the answer to this or not, but um, John Michael Stubbins was curious. He wanted to know if you knew if the Bee Gees were paired with the film or, or which came first, the project or the music or the film itself. The original idea came from a wonderful article in New York Magazine that was called, and you have to hold on to your hats while I say all these words, Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night. That's oh, the, I love that. That's the name of the article, and about life in a disco in Brooklyn in a, in a working-class neighborhood. Not a fancy disco, but just a plain, ordinary, run-of-the-mill place. Uh, Robert Stigwood bought this for John Travolta, who had they had just hired to play the lead in Greece, but they couldn't do Greece right away because Olivia Newton-John wasn't available for another eight months or so, and they had to wait for her. And they thought, well, while we're doing it, that, while we're waiting for her, we'll do this other little movie, <laughs> and it'll we'll do it on the cheap for a couple of million dollars, and it'll be great. So. 
Robert Stigwood, who managed the Bee Gees and Elton John and Peter Frampton and a lot of great musical acts of the time, wow. Robert called the Bee Gees and he said, I want you to write some songs for this. And he told them the story because the script at that point wasn't written. He just told them the story of what was planned. And the Bee Gees wrote five songs three of which they planned to do themselves and record themselves, and two of which would be given over to some other artists. And when I came onto the film, Robert handed me a cassette, little old, you remember cassettes? Oh, yeah. And, and he said, on, he said here's, here's five songs with uh, three number one hits on it. I said, have you played these for anybody? He said, oh, they're not released, but there's three number one hits here. <laughs> and I, I couldn't help but think to myself, that was one of the most arrogant things I had ever heard. Mm-hmm. How do you know you got three number one hits? It just probably just shining me on. And, and I played it for my friends at Paramount Studios who, was, who were helping finance the picture. And they went, well, this stuff isn't even disco. What is this? Uh-huh. Uh, this isn't very good. So anyway, I took those songs and I said, uh, where do the songs go in the movie? They said, we don't know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I said, you don't know? He said, well, I think, I think Barry Gibb knows. So I said, well, I'll call him. Well, he's in Australia. He's on tour and I can never get him on the phone. So, so I just put them the songs where I thought they'd work the best. <laughs> and Creative when- freedom, yeah. When we, when we would shoot those particular scenes, we would always have the songs with us in their demo form and use them as playback so that everybody was dancing to or moving to the exact rhythm and tempo of those songs. That's, that's so cool. So this is my, my little guilty pleasure question. What was it like directing John Travolta, especially in dance scenes? Well, thank God. Uh, he... He started training long before. He started training two or three months before. And when he first saw what the choreographer had in mind, he was terrified. Mm -hmm. The uh, choreographer could do all of those dance steps and took him to discos where he would take over the dance floor, as John does in the movie, and clear the dance floor and then just do these amazing uh, solos. This was Denny Terrio, who was the, the choreographer for John. And John just said, oh, I can't do this. I'll never be able to do the movie. I quit. And everybody had to kind of, you know, lull him, nurse him back and coax him back to working out. And by the time I got there, he was amazing. I mean, just physically astounding to watch and, and how athletic those dances are. You know, those those kind of things where you're standing up straight, you've got your arms crossed in front of you, in front of your body, and, and you suddenly go down on your knees and then leap back up. Those oh, yeah. kind of Russian dance steps. Yeah, just try doing a couple of those. <laughs> it hurts my knees thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, you want to know how hard something is. And he, he was fabulous because he was so concerned about looking good, and, and he did. Uh, just he, he he would make it look effortless, even though the white suit that he was wearing would be completely soaked, sopping through after a four minute dance. Mm. And you had to you had to peel this thing off him. <laughs> and 
and we only had two suits. So one suit, the fresh one would go on him for the next take. And the, the other sopping wet suit would go outside with a hairdryer to be dried in the, in the fresh, fragrant air of Brooklyn. <laughs> All the glamour of Hollywood. <laughs> glamour of Hollywood. And the, and the suit was so stinky by the end of the day that you could just tell it where the dry cleaners were and it would walk there by itself. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, you've also done television. Yes, a lot of good television. Yeah. One of the TV shows you've worked on that's a little newer that we like quite a bit. We love Psych. Yeah, you directed a number of episodes of Psych. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? I mean, they seem kind of, you know, those actors. Is it, is it as, as fun and, and nice a set as it seems like? <laughs> of course, you're going to have to say yes. Yeah, I don't think he's going to say <laughs> It's the worst piece of crap. <laughs> uh, it's completely derivative and they're difficult to work with. Sorry. <laughs> those guys are just a bunch of clowns. I mean, geez, they're never serious about their acting. They're just joking. Uh, no, it's great. Uh, it, I, I, I thought to myself one day, I, I bet this is what it might have been like to work with Abbott and Costello or Laurel and Hardy. Guys that guys that just play off one another and the scene starts out as one thing and then it becomes another as you rehearse it and start to perform it because uh, James Roday and Dulé Hill are just an amazing team together and and always making something wonderful out of uh, maybe a funny idea and they just make it that much funnier. So it was just always a treat with uh, with the whole cast doing those shows oh yeah it's an it's really a, a really great cast i think not obviously those two have great chemistry but the whole cast seems to have really good chemistry oh yes absolutely which uh, i guess makes your job easier <laughs> yeah and, and then i've been friends with corbin bernson for a long time and so we love him we're sort of the, the old guys on the set and just love to joke around and 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 have fun so um, and, and James Roday's best girlfriend, uh, Maggie Lawson, mm -hmm. uh, is, is always good in those shows, you know, and a real leveling influence because she's willing to play the straight person. Uh, Which is hard. <laughs> abs absolutely. It is, it is hard to <laughs> be, be there and not, not fall, fall down laughing all the time. And with a Timothy Amundsen, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but I, I adore him. He is he cracks me up every time I see him. Oh, he's he's wonderful. And and, and there he's he's got to play a, a character who is, you know, a, basically a buffoon. Yeah. And, and a lot of actors would resist that. But he goes for it whole hog. He commits to it and is willing to, to let himself be that way. And it's a very. It's a very brave thing to do, and and uh, and and very gutsy, and I and I just I just have to admire him and respect him for for being willing to play that kind of character. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I get the feeling sometimes in that show that some of the scenes, some of the jokes feel a little bit improv a little bit. Do you ever let them improv some of the yeah, jokes? Yeah, how much leeway and improv do you uh, kind of give them? Uh, I I give them all the freedom in the world. Because I've got a script that is, you know, pretty massaged and carefully done. A lot of the scripts were written by James Roday himself. 
which don't tell, don't ask me how he does that. <laughs> act in act in these, and then come and and write a lot of them, and and actually direct some of them too. But any ideas that come up, I think you know you have to try them out. You can always go back to the script. Mm-hmm. And and it would be foolish to just say, no, 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 it's not scripted. We can't do that if you get a good idea. So I'm always uh, for being as loose and improvisational. Things like in Saturday Night Fever, some of the funniest lines in the movie were improvised by John Travolta on the spot. Mm-hmm. And they're just great contributions to the film. Same in the same in Short Circuit with with uh, number five who uh, a lot of his lines were improvised by the puppeteers. That's great. Yeah, so if you have a good script, it's like having a a good map. So if you have a strong map, you know where you're going, you can take detours and be okay. Right. And and if if it's terrible and doesn't work, well, what the heck? Just cut it out. (laughs) You don't have to have it. I like that. Now, another show that you've worked on uh, I really enjoy it's a little older show, and it's completely different. Uh, <laughs> Very genre, different tone. Is uh, Night Gallery. Yeah. Um, oh, good. Oh, for a minute, I I was worried. I thought you said a little older show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, it smelled, but it wasn't that bad. <laughs> Not as bad as John Travolta's suit. <laughs> I'm going to blame uh, it all on the code. <laughs> I was so lucky. I got to work on the pilot of Night Gallery. I was an associate producer on that and then wound up directing about half a dozen of the episodes. And they're such great fun because every week you had a totally different cast, totally different stories. Some of the stories were 10 minutes long, some were 20, some were one minute long. And and that was just like the most playful, fun environment with with silly horror stories and terrifying horror stories, all kinds of stuff. And and then getting to work with Rod Serling, who was writing so many of them himself, was uh, was such a treat. As you felt like, well, you're with major part of television history here with Rod yeah, Serling. Yeah. Now we've talked a little bit about your film work, a little bit about your TV work, mm-hmm. which leads us to another question from an audience member or listener. Mandy Linton asked if you prefer directing films or TV shows. Which which do you like better? Well, I like the freedom of films. Uh, the director has much more freedom in films uh, and much more independence, even though you still have studios to answer to and budgets to answer to and lots of demands. But uh, television is really a producer's medium, and, and the director is coming along trying to do the 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 best job he can for an episode of a series that he may do out of say 22 episodes in a year he may be lucky to do two or three and there'll be eight or ten other directors coming along so the continuity and the quality control is in the hands of the producers so you're when you're coming along you're you're sort of like the the guest chef in a restaurant and, and, and you can't go into a Mexican restaurant and start preparing chicken curry. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, better get, you better get those enchiladas right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so your, your room for invention is, is not forbidden. It's just a little more limited. 
mm-hmm. and and you, you have to come in and fit into the program before you go reinventing the wheel. Right. How many metaphors have I mixed up? But <laughs> <laughs> they all seem to come together at the end, so you're good. <laughs> Now, we mentioned earlier, you have two books that are out. One's brand new. The new one is called John Badham on Directing. Mm -hmm. And your first one was I'll Be in My Trailer, The Creative Wars Between Directors and Actors. actors. I just love that. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about those books and and how they're different from each other, too? Well, so much of both of them really have to do with how to work with actors and, and why we as directors often fail our actors by not uh, treating them properly by not taking advantage of what they can bring to us. As I was saying earlier, there are creative partners and there are, there are good ways to talk to actors uh, and there are bad ways. To, the, the title of my first book, I'll Be In My Trailer, came because of a, a, an argument I had with John Travolta over I staged a scene before he got there to see it. We were in a rush, and they said, well, tell us, just show us what the actors are doing. And, and I make something up, and, and John comes, and it's a very crucial scene. It was not some little piddly scene. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and he looks at me, and he goes, well, I, would do, I wouldn't do that. And I said, well, uh, yeah, but we had to do it this way and this way. And he said, well, I don't care. I'll be in my trailer. <laughs> and, and, of course, he was right. I, I, it was totally my fault. And I knew better than to stage scenes without the actors present, just just like uh, I knew better than to say to one actor one day, can you do this scene a little faster? And and, and he, he was a very experienced actor, Vic Morrow, you may remember, may remember him. And he looked at me and he said, kid, don't ever tell me faster. <laughs> For a while, we were going to call the book, don't ever tell me faster. Uh, because it really has to do with how do you talk to an actor? What what kind of things will get the best response from them? You don't want to be talking to them about how their mother beat them as a child or how they were made fun of in school. Those are useless kind of things to talk to people about what went on in their past life. What you want to talk to them about is, hey, in this scene, you're trying to persuade this girl to go out for coffee with you. And, uh, hey, in this scene, you're trying to get the policeman not to give you a ticket. That's what the scene's about. You've got to persuade this guy. So trying to teach people how to, uh, how, to, how to talk to actors in terms of what you're doing in a scene is a huge part of both of these books. And, and the big part of the new book is the fact that many, many actors really don't trust directors because they've been screwed over and disrespected and ignored by director after director their whole career and and to the point where they just don't even listen to them anymore beyond standing on the given mark and yeah. and that's just a terrible waste of of an actor's talent and and a, and a director's ignorance for not learning how to bond with your actors so we talk a lot in the book about how does a director do that how can you get on their you know get them to trust you and contribute ideas and, and feel like, you know, you're going to take care of them and not let them look like idiots. Yeah. And not run them down and make them feel bad either. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, absolutely not. Yeah. You have to banish sarcasm from your, your life. I love sarcasm. I think sarcasm is great fun, but 
I just don't do it anymore because it gets me in too much trouble. <laughs> yeah, there's a time and a place, and people, and on the set's not not one of them. Yeah, people resent the bejesus out of sarcasm. <laughs> you know, you walk into a sarcastic room and you say, "There's no bejesus in here." Oh my God, look at that. <laughs> Yeah, because actors are always going to be self-conscious. They're they're the ones in front of that camera, and they got to be worried. They got to trust so that you're going to say. They're the most vulnerable, really. Yeah. On the set, except unless maybe the writers there, <laughs> they are too. The director hides behind video assist. The writer hides behind his computer, and the actor is out there, just basically holding his insides out for the world to see, <laughs> and 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 you know maybe looking like a fool or not, and. Uh, that's that's a hard thing to get people to understand. Mm-hmm. Well, now your second book, I really like the format of the book. You have like you break it down like five mistakes directors make. Yeah. Five strategies. You have the director's checklist. I really like how you have a number of contributors. You have a number of quotes from different, you know, very well known uh, uh, directors, filmmakers. Yeah. And you've already given like little tips here and there. There's a lot of wisdom already in, in the episode, I think, so far. <laughs> but uh, but we do have a couple of listeners who asked some questions. Pull these out of the book or wherever you want. We have Matthew Ulm, who says, I know he's been teaching for quite a few years. I want to know if there was a particular lesson or concept that is critical for a director to comprehend, but is also the hardest to grasp. Well, I think what I was just talking about, about using strong, active verbs as directions is is a critical thing and directors talk too much so i try to teach my students how to give directions in terms of one or two words one or two strong verbs and and i say that you you have to give the direction in 10 seconds or less because directors always talk too much they always put an actor to sleep with a bunch of gobbledygook that nobody really cares about except the director likes to hear himself talk and I'm as guilty of that as anybody but if you can boil it down to a few words in 10 seconds or less that's something that the actor will hear that's something he can he can do and respond to that's a tough lesson right there you can spend a lot of years getting good at that one Mm-hmm. Mandy Lynn Tone has a second question. She's another one of our listeners. And she had a question along those same lines, but on the flip side of that, what advice would you give do you give to actors? Wow. Uh, maybe along the same lines of a particular lesson or a concept <laughs> that's you know critical. Don't but kill hard to the learn. director. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't uh, lock yourself in your trailer and never come out. Yourself <laughs> in your trailer. Well, acting Acting and directing are like singing or dancing. They're things that you have to stay fresh at and continually go to, you know, a version of the gymnasium, whether you're going to acting classes or studying it in in some way. I think those those are things that are important to keep your skills up because, uh, you know, actors think of their, their bodies and their voices as their instruments, and those have to be kept sharp. And, and you can't just go and hang out at the beach or the bar and, and hope to, to remain very good as, as an actor. So I, I think that's something you can do your entire life. The same with directors. You know, nobody, nobody ever learned how to be a good director by not directing. <laughs> I like that. 
That's a good bit of advice. Yes, for sure. <laughs> you said you had like more of a theater background originally, you know, more of education in that. I'm kind of curious. I mean, obviously there's all the technical aspects you have to learn about framing shots and, and blocking actors for light and everything. But uh, I'm curious what kind of major difference there was for you on directing an actor's performance from that original training to what you learned in, in your years of film. You know what? I believe, and a lot of my, my actor friends believe, uh, Jimmy Woods pops to mind, that there's no difference whatsoever. There may be a slight difference in scale, in the scale of the performance. If you're on a stage, you may have the job of projecting your voice or some gestures so that it will fill up the size of the theater you're in, whether it's a 98-seat house uh, or a 1,500-seat house. You've got to work to that scale. In, in, a, in a film, your audience is only inches away from you in the form of the lens. Your audience's ears are even closer than that in the form of a microphone. And, and you can work at a much smaller scale. And the truth of your acting will be greater than if you're trying to act at that big scale. So it, it really is very easy to train actors to adjust their scale to the venue they're working in. And just as if we go outside in the traffic, we start talking louder automatically and we come inside and we use our inside voice. That's what we have to get the actors to do. And I've actually taken actors at the Yale Drama School who are used to theater and showed them how they can do that big screaming, yelling scene from Macbeth and make it as small as anything and be even more powerful than when they were screaming and yelling if I photograph it right. Hmm. Yeah. That's great advice. That is. All right. Well, we've talked a lot about your past work. Do you have any films or TV projects upcoming that you'd like to talk about? That are in the works, that, yeah, that you'd like to discuss. Yeah, let's see. I, uh, I was just lucky to do uh, part of the very last season of Nikita, which is on the CW network, and uh, just finished up its, its season. Those, those shows are going to be coming on toward the end of the year and is a wonderful wrap-up to a pretty exciting show that starred Maggie Q. Mm-hmm. Um, and next week I, I get to start working on a, uh, another CW show called uh, Supernatural. Ooh. Oh, I, that's one of my favorites. Oh, great, great. Yeah, so I'm excited. Uh, I'm excited to go off and, and work on that with, with these guys. And, uh, and they're, they're pretty amazing that they're still having fun and, and uh, really committed. This is going into its ninth year. Yeah, we've heard that it's an amazing cast and crew. And yeah, it, and it's going strong because it's like their premiere this season was for ninth season was uh, their highest rated since 2010. Yeah, so. they seem to keep growing every year. So <laughs> great. You're coming in at a really good time. Yeah. <laughs> happy to, I'm happy to be there. Yes. Do you know Do you know which episode it's going to be like in, uh, what number? in the queue? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, I have a rather ominous number. Uh, it's the ninth season, and and so they always start the numbering out with nine, nine uh-huh. eleven. Oh, oh, that'll be easy to remember. 
I'm going to be looking for that one. Good. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't want to be around the day it goes on the air. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to be in a cabin somewhere. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to go and hang out with the Unabomber. <laughs> well, before we go, could you share with our listeners where they can find you and your work online? Absolutely. Easy to do to go to johnbatham.com and all one word and all yeah. lowercase. And it's spelled, the last name is B-A-D-H-A-M. I like bad ham. <laughs> uh, what a name. A good thing I wasn't an actor. Uh, oh, that would have been good. That would have been terrible. <laughs> uh, so, yes, they can, because there, there are all kinds of clips from from lots of different uh, films and shows, as well as, a, uh, a, if I do say so myself, a dynamite demo reel that two brilliant young editors put together for me and makes me look a lot better than I really am. <laughs> I bet not. <laughs> well, and we have to be sure to let everyone know, please go find him online and you'll definitely want to check out his books because you do have a, you have a wealth of experience and, and knowledge and wisdom that, you know, this is great education. You know, you started out working from the bottom of the industry and working your way up and, and this can really help. Yeah, if you, if you want to same. be a director, it's must-read book, I think. Yeah. Your new book, is it already out or is it coming out soon? Uh, it's out. You should be able to find it on Amazon. You'll even find the uh, audiobook, audiobook.com uh, version of it. Oh. Uh, audible.com, that's it. And that I got to narrate, uh, which was a treat for me, getting to read my entire book aloud over, over three days. I, I didn't think I'd have the patience to do that. Uh, but it was it was great fun. I just asked them when I was done. I said, I don't like my voice. Uh, can you please run this through the Orson Welles filter? <laughs> Actually, I was just thinking you have a great voice for that. And what better person to read it than who wrote it? So. Yeah. Well, it was fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, it's been... we really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's fun talking to you guys. John for chatting with us and don't forget you can check out his books from Michael Weezy Productions and we look forward to his upcoming Supernatural episode. Yeah, I can't wait to see that. Lucky 9-11. <laughs> yeah, what could go wrong? <laughs> well, that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. And coming up soon, we have a special Halloween episode with a couple of surprise guests. Halloween's coming up? Yeah, so keep a lookout for that. And don't forget, you can also check out the other great shows on the Sci-Fi Pulse radio channel like SFP Now, The Roundtable, and more. Until Until next time. time.